James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think I didn't read from the New American Standard Bible. I could do the Greek, I suppose. Um, Probably not. Um, In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Greeks search for wisdom. And it's true. The three most influential philosophers of all time are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And all of them are Greek. Matter of fact, our word philosophy is derived from a Greek word which literally translates love of wisdom. The two greatest influences in Western society are Christianity and the classics. That's Greek thought. Um, This is especially true of our country. Those two influences dominate our founding documents. Our our founding fathers quoted scripture all the time, but they also drew heavily upon Greco-Roman sources. Thomas Jefferson loved Epicurus and John Adams loved Cicero. Adams actually... Uh, got the idea for a mixed constitution of three branches of government from Cicero. The intense Greco-Roman influence is seen even in the architecture of many of the buildings in in Washington, D.C. Architect Daniel Burnham modeled uh, the Union Station in D.C. after buildings in ancient Rome. Uh, The arches at Union Station were based on the Arch of Constantine, And the grand vaulted spaces were inspired by the baths of Diocletian. Another example would be the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, Architect Henry Bacon uh, based it on the Acropolis in in Greece. And anyone's ever been to D.C. knows this influence. You see it everywhere. Um, We also see the influence of the Greeks in our country's preoccupation with academics and higher education. The word academics traces back to Plato's school of philosophy founded approximately at Academia, a sanctuary of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and skill just north of Athens. Many of our universities were founded with the goal of seeking wisdom and understanding. It's common to find the Latin word veritas, meaning truth in the models of many of our universities. Sadly, foolishness passes as wisdom today. And our universities have become a cesspool of folly and wickedness. And most of society has followed along with them. It's clear that not all wisdom is equal. I think those Greek influences were tempered by Christianity. But as our society's commitment to Christianity decreased, the pagan influences became primary and even gave way to more debased pagan influences. This is why the early church father, Tertullian, Famously said, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? The church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic. 
Tertullian saw that the truth of Christianity, or he saw the truth of Christianity to be fully sufficient and worried that philosophy, that is the wisdom of men, would corrupt the pure doctrine of God. Now, I don't believe in solo scriptura, scripture as the only authority. I believe in sola scriptura, scripture as the final and highest authority. In other words, we can learn from other sources than scripture. Um, so Tertullian's concerns were justified, but I think he went too far. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, John Calvin wrote, If the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectics, mathematics, and other disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. And I agree. I read lots of non-Christian, non-fiction works, especially in the area of sociology and technology. It's an entrance of mine. I found such works to be helpful, but they always require a good deal of discernment. You've got to chew off the meat and spit out the bones, you know. Um, For example, I was recently reading something by a health expert, and his advice on workouts and diet was was top-notch. It was really helpful. He clearly understood how the human body works much better than me. Well, I figured out this much. If you eat too much, you you do get fat. It seems to be a really important principle. Um, Anyway... um, and he understood how to execute a workout plan. It was, that advice was good, but his stuff on motivation was hogwash. It was a bunch of self-esteem and self-worship nonsense. It was dangerous advice based on the wisdom of the world. And again, not all wisdom is equal. Some is downright wicked. That's why in Colossians, Paul warns, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So wisdom, broadly speaking, falls into two categories, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. Or to put it another way, there is wisdom that is according to worldly principles, earthly wisdom, and there's wisdom that's according to Christ, heavenly wisdom. To which do you belong? Are you worldly wise, or do you possess the wisdom of heaven? In verse 13 of our passage, James asks, Who among you is wise and understanding? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a soul-searching sort of question. Scripture is full of diagnostics like this. In chapter 2 of James, James compares Scripture to a mirror. Scripture is the merciless revealer. It lays bare our reality as we look into it. It causes us to face ourselves, warts, sins, and all. Are you wise? Are you understanding? Those are real questions. They're there for you to reflect on and do a little self-evaluation. The traditional distinction is that understanding refers to right knowledge and wisdom refers to right application of that knowledge. And I like those distinctions. I think they're good. But a biblical definition runs a bit deeper. James makes frequent allusions to wisdom literature and even quotes Proverbs. Really, as you read James, it's like a mix of the Sermon on the Mount and Proverbs. It really sticks out as you read it. Um, But it's clear that he's presupposing the meaning of understanding and wisdom laid down in wisdom literature. For example, in Proverbs 1.7, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Solomon says something very similar in Ecclesiastes. 
He spends the greater part of a book explaining the vanity of trying to find fulfillment in earthly pursuits. He does it all, builds kingdoms, lots of women, lots of money, lots of madness. He does the whole thing. And as he reflects on all his attempts at happiness, he says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. All true wisdom and understanding begins and ends with fearing God. God made everything, small, or snails, gravity, colors, photosynthesis, marriage, muscles. Every created thing was created by God. It can only truly be understood in relation to him because God created everything for his purposes. You can't have a right knowledge or right application of that knowledge without fearing God. That's why the wisdom of the world eventually devolves into folly. They don't fear God. They reject him. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Therefore, their understanding and wisdom is partial. And worse yet, it's twisted because they only use it for selfish purposes. It's earthly wisdom. It rises no higher. But all true wisdom begins with bowing the knee to the God of heaven. Consider Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and a knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? True wisdom comes from having your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to believe on Jesus as Lord. Colossians 2 tells us that it is Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's through Jesus that we gain a true understanding of the created world's purpose. And it's through him that our lives begin a process of being reordered according to God's purpose. Jesus is the cornerstone of wisdom. Without him, the entire structure falls into disorder, but through him the rubble of our old lives can be rebuilt into a cathedral of worship. So, are you wise in understanding? To say yes requires that you fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom, but it doesn't stop there. Wisdom isn't merely an internal belief. It works itself out. James says, Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behaviors, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. James has zero patience for pretenders. He's all about the rubber meeting the road. I remember as a new Christian, I was like, finally, a book that tells me what to do. (laughs) First time I read it. It was very helpful. In chapter one, he says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he goes on to say, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world or by the world. Then he goes on in chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, 
and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James knows that the fruit of knowing Christ is a transformed life. It's easy to talk a good game, but the reality of our life is revealed in our behavior. You will know a tree by its fruits. It's common to hear people say that Christianity isn't about behavior modification. Wrong. It absolutely is. That's insane. However, it's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts through the Word of God that modifies our behavior. If you think the call to live a holy life is a gospel-denying legalism, you are deceived. And no, not God. God doesn't just catch his fish, he cleans them. Now in this verse, Matthew Henry, who I've realized almost everything I say is either Matthew Henry or John Calvin. He just internalized it. But if you're going to internalize anyone, go with with the, the proven ones. He says, true wisdom does not lie in good notions. For speculations, so much as in good and useful actions. Not he who thinks well or he who talks well is in the sense of the scripture allowed to be wise if he does not live and act well. Are you wise? James says, show me with a holy life. Also note that our deeds are to be done in the gentleness of wisdom. Some translations have it as in the meekness of wisdom. Either is fine, uh, but both require some explanation. Gentleness and meekness have come to be wrongly associated with weakness or softness. And that's incorrect. That's, that's not what gentle or meek or humble means in a scripture sense, scriptural sense. Hodge says, meekness is that unresisting uncomplaining disposition of mind which enables us to bear without irritation or resentment the faults and injuries of others. <laughs> That's not weak or soft. If you possess that, you are stronger than I am some of the times, definitely. Especially when my kids are screaming and I'm trying to finish a sermon. Uh, not so meek. Watson says, meekness is a grace whereby we are enabled by the Spirit of God to moderate our passion. It's the clutch of the human heart. Wise people act, but they act deliberately and with great care. They're not rash. They've learned, as James says, to be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Fathers, take note. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. This doesn't mean that the wise men are are always just even, right? Even keel, as if the holy life is one of balance. But rather, it means that they act appropriately. Sometimes the meek thing to do is flip over tables and temples and whip people. That's being meek. To not do it is to lack meekness. And other times it means standing silent before your accusers that are lying about you. Both things can be meekness. It's about having the appropriate God-honoring response to the situation. Tozer says, 
The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. That's the balance, right? I I meet so many macho men that think being macho is not caring about what other people think. Totally not true, right? But it is. You don't care what the world thinks. I care very much what my fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers in the faith think about me. You, know, you guys are here to sharpen us, right? It's the family. But, but we stop caring about the world. We care about God's estimate of us. Right? We want to be held accountable to the holy standard of God's word, not some flimsy standard of the world. So even meekness flows from the wisdom which starts with fearing God. If your life isn't holy, if your deeds aren't done in meekness, are you wise? Do you understand? In the remaining verses, James begins to contrast earthly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now there's a lot worth meditating on in these verses, but I I only want to point out two things on them. First, note that the defining feature of earthly wisdom is self-centered focus. That's what sticks out when you read that. It comes up over and over again. The worldly wise man's wisdom is all about getting himself ahead. He's possessed with selfish ambition. Ambition in itself is not evil. We we are glad we have men in this church that aspire to office. Scripture says that's a a noble thing. It's a good thing. Because it's for the Lord. To aspire to be a father, a mother, to, to be the best in your field for the glory of God. That is a holy ambition. But that is not these men. This sort of man, his mind stews and schemes on how he can improve himself for his own desires, for his own glory, for his own name. He's only willing to look after the concerns of others if they benefit him. This is one of the number one ways of identifying a false teacher in Scripture. That they, they like to tell people things, they like to flatter people, but they do it so they can gain an advantage. I almost always want to buy things from rude salesmen. Because I know like he's not deceiving me. He's just being really rude. He's probably real. But hey, buddy, how's it going? Oh, we're going to get you in the best car you ever. Sorry. Uh, best car. You know, um, I don't know about this guy. Um, but, uh, but if it doesn't benefit him, he moves on or plows over those that are in the way. This naturally gives birth to bitter envy. The old Webster's definition of envy reads like so. Brace yourself to feel uneasiness, mortification, discontent at the sight of superior excellence, reputation, or happiness enjoyed by another. To repine at another's prosperity. To fret or grieve oneself at the real or supposed superiority of another. And to hate him on that account. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever resented someone for getting a promotion or getting in shape? Have you ever found yourself jealous of someone's home 
or the vacation they took. I think, <laughs> I think social media is a, a weird, vicious cycle where people, I don't think everyone that, po- I said this in Sunday school, I'm going to bring it up again though. Uh, I don't think everyone that posts pictures on Instagram or whatever um, is just like trying to brag about their life. I know a bunch of them are. Right. Anytime I, I want to see a picture of like kids like screaming and crying from vacation sometimes, but then I don't. Um, but uh, but then I always hear people say, oh, they're bragging. Maybe. Maybe. Have you considered that your heart is full of envy, that you want to be on that vacation? And it's this weird, vicious cycle of them bragging and you desiring it. It's like earthly wisdom. Right. We should be able to look at someone having a good time and say, praise God, I'm happy. I'm happy that you're being refreshed. But we get in this vicious cycle of, of being the Joneses and then trying to catch up with them. Earthly wisdom is all about me, and therefore it can't rejoice when God blesses others. That's the problem. This is the danger in the self-improvement genre. It becomes spiritually detrimental when it has no greater purpose than making a better self. It's all about the now. It has no view towards the pleasures that are at the right hand of God forever and ever. Heaven is a world of pleasure. It lives only for those lesser pleasures that we enjoy in this life. That's why James says this earthly wisdom is unspiritual, or a better translation, I think, is sensual. It's all about the senses, about the flesh. It's the wisdom that says, if it makes you feel good, do it. But it's the fool that trades eternal pleasures for the fleeting pleasures of this life. You go gray quick. And you die even quicker. We all will be standing before the throne. Choose wisely. James also says this wisdom is demonic. You know, we don't talk about demonic things enough in the Reformed Church. There's an unseen realm. There are, there are spiritual powers against us. Demons. They're real. Don't be a rationalist. This is demonic. It's demonic because I'm sure it has some inspiration there, but also because it doesn't honor God. And I think some of the self-improvement books can be helpful if they're read with stewardship in mind. You have a God-given ability. You have God-given abilities given to you for his purpose. Thus, it's your responsibility to develop them. Men, women, like use the things God's given you. But the selfish man lives only for himself and not for God's glory. Like Satan, the worldly wise man says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He lives to make his name great, not the name of God. That's the difference. It always sticks out to me, the difference between Cain and Seth. Cain is told, wander the earth. And instead, he builds a city and he names it after his son right, to glorify his line, to make his name great. Same thing happens with the Tower of Babel, to make their name great. But the descendants of Seth, they're known as the people that call on the name of the Lord. That's what they're about. The wicked man's about his name. Second, note the end result of earthly wisdom is disorder. A big question in scripture is, why do the wicked prosper? The answer is simple. They don't. That's the answer. Psalm 1 says, the man who delights in the law of the Lord 
will he, he will prosper in whatever he does. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Their prosperity, or the prosperity of the wicked, is only temporary. It always devolves into disorder. And every evil thing, says James. The wisdom of the world has no mind to the future. It lives only for the now. And they can generate some impressive temporary results. The wisdom of the world can. That's why people get suckered by it. That's why you can uh, be taken captive by it. Uh, For example, I've seen a church use ungodly marketing tactics to grow a crowd. I was a church planner, and through that I knew lots of church planners, and we saw what they were doing. And um, one, I used to always make this joke about how we're not going to get people into church by giving away iPods, back when iPods cost a billion dollars, whatever that, you know. And then, my, and then one of my friends starts giving away iPods to get people to come to church. I was like, what? Um, so he's giving away iPods, all right, whatever. But then he starts to dilute the, dilute the gospel message, okay? And they do grow quick, 400 people in 18 months, right? Huge. Six months later, gone. Church doesn't exist. You can build, you can't build a well-ordered life without God at the center. You can look for these worldly shortcuts. And they'll give you, they'll get you going for a bit. But they always fall apart. You've got to remember that. Do not envy the wicked. Young people, do not envy the wicked. What was, what was it? It was Cademan or someone. We were talking about something Malone. What's this rapper name Malone? It's not Carl Malone. Another Malone. What's his name? Say it, say it louder. Okay, that dude. Yeah, he doesn't matter. And he was telling me like, Oh, he's better than the Beatles, which, whatever. But let's just remember, these people just come and go. There's always the next big quarterback, the next big singer, right? The next big celebrity, the next big celebrity preacher, Bill Hybels, then it's Mark Driscoll, just one trend after another. Always passing so quick and we giggle over it. We're so excited. These things just come and go. Look to the Word of God. Trust those things. Don't be impressed by these people. Results are easy to manufacture. But will it last? The worship and adoration of God is the ordering principle for all of life. You get that right, things start to fall in place. So let's briefly consider the heavenly wisdom. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, well... This is not the right translation, is it? I can't remember. This is the danger when you read a bunch of translations. Cut and paste the wrong one. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It's exactly the opposite of the worldly wisdom. Whereas earthly wisdom is centered on self, heavenly wisdom is pure. By this word, James excludes hypocrisy and ambition. It isn't self-seeking wisdom. It's a wisdom driven by a desire to please God. It's pure and undivided. True wisdom is God's gift. 
It comes from above and realigns us to his purpose. The greatest commandment, love God with all your whole, with your whole being, makes the second possible. Love your neighbor as yourself. The wisdom from above produces peace, not because it overlooks sin, but because it addresses it. It looks for a godly way to resolve conflict. The wisdom from above is gentle because it's birthed from poverty of spirit that is well acquainted with human weakness and therefore is patient with the weakness of others. How can you be so impatient with others when God has been so patient with you? Think of his love, long-suffering. It is salvation. Right? When you start getting frustrated, think of how patient the Lord's been with you. Be patient with others. The wisdom from above is reasonable, by which James means it's willing to yield, because it knows that only God is all-knowing. And as Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. It's patient, listens. The wisdom above is full of mercy and good fruits because we have received it on the basis of mercy and grace purchased by the blood spilt on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, the wisdom from above isn't a show. It isn't mere talk. It's without hypocrisy. Then James closes with, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, the fear of God results in transformed lives. Matthew Henry says, Let others reap the fruits of contention and all the advantages they propose to themselves by them. But let us go on peaceably to sow the seeds of righteousness and we may depend upon it that our labors will not be lost. So he says, let us live out a life of heavenly wisdom. Now, one more concluding thought. Those that are wise in God can make use of the wisdom of men. Calvin did it. Reformers do it. Everyone does it. That's how we got to the moon, okay? Um, uh, we can be like the Israelites who plunder the gold of the Egyptians, And in this sense, we, the church, can plunder the wisdom of the world that is found in the secular domain. However, we do well to remember that it was likely that a bunch of the gold that the Egyptians gave to Israel wound up in that golden calf. The danger of idolatry is real. It can happen with gold or psychology. We must be sure that we read all non-biblical sources in the light of Scripture and apply them for the purposes of God. Society is in a rough way because it has rejected heavenly wisdom in favor of earthly wisdom, pagan stuff, and consequently is falling to peace, pieces, right? disorder and every evil thing. If we're to rebuild, we must start in our own homes and in this church. We need to live lives of heavenly wisdom, but oh, do we lack in so many ways which is why I want to end with a promise from James. James says in James 1, 5 through 6, If any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. It will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Let's pray. Father, we ask for wisdom. We need it. Oh, Lord, help us have the wisdom that first starts with fearing you, God. 
Now, we would not be worshipers of the flesh, of carnal pleasures, God, but we would find the joy that comes from uh, using our bodies and our gifts and everything for your glory, God. Oh, strengthen our spirits, Lord, our soul. Give us faith. Strengthen us to walk in your ways, to walk according to your spirit, to not be bogged down with the works of the flesh, but to be a tree that is covered in the fruits of the spirit, Lord. Lord, give us uh, wisdom. Show us how to interact in a godly way with our, our spouse, with our fellow church members, our, our children, our community, Lord. Help us uh, to demonstrate the goodness of a life submitted to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the church, God, strengthen our families, and that this country would repent and turn back to you, Lord. And we wouldn't be a society that is in disorder but a society that's known by the peace that only comes from heaven. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.